Welcome to Model High Theology, a podcast and live event that explores the big questions of meaning, belonging, and justice. We have just experienced a contentious and historic election season. Long lines, record-breaking mail-in voting, and aggressive conspiracy theories meant to suppress the votes of black and brown people were the defining realities of the past two months of media coverage. Once every vote is counted, election experts and historians project that voter turnout, turnout hasn't been this robust since 1908, 112 years ago. When planning for this episode this past summer, I asked God to send me a wise, deeply rooted guest who can speak insightfully, justly, and wisely into this election's outcome. A guest who can, with laser focus, analyze this election through a generative and constructive theological and political lens. I asked, and our guest, a vice president and associate professor for Meadville Lombard Theological School in the city of Chicago, and author of Our Lives Matter, A Womanist Queer Theology, graciously accepted. Please give the Reverend Pamela Lightsey, PhD, a warm Mile High Theology welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Reverend. Welcome. Thank Very you for joining good. us this evening. It's good to be here with you. And I think I'm only ever called Reverend Greer when I'm in trouble. Oh. <laughs> my, my apologies. <laughs> Thank You're you not in trouble, with. I can assure you of that. Good, good. It's so good to see you. It's good to see you too. So we just elected a new president and the current president will not concede. Mm. Um, tell us what's going on. Hmm. Well, let's, I think what I want to do is shift our focus a mm -hmm. bit, if I can. Please. Uh, from this image of a man who is really behaving as he hinted that he would, and that he would, you know, he would do this, he would behave in this way, said he would behave in this way to a network. Instead, I want to shift to this kind of network of people um, who make his behavior possible. And I'm not speaking about his voting base, uh, but really about the leaders of Congress, because in order to talk about what's going on, I think we really need to begin to really, uh, I don't think we've done sufficient interrogation of the motivations, uh, of their motivations for undergirding uh, the vitriol that is Donnie Trump. I, I don't think that we've done that. What I do think is, I'm, I'm, is, it, is, it, is it because, and people, you know, they speculate, is it because they want, they, they, they support him because they want to accumulate more power? I don't think so. You know, these people have power ad nauseum. Is it because they want to acquire more money? These people 
have wealth beyond their lifetime at this point. So I don't, you know, it could, one could say that one never has enough when one is greedy, but I don't think so. I don't, it, I, I don't think that is the only reason, though that the, those are the only reasons. I think that there is a particular reason that we need to interrogate and unpack. And I think it is that they looked up and they saw the very real possibility of the fall of an ideology that they so revered, that they so worshiped, that they so sought to save at all costs. And that is the myth of whiteness, as James Baldwin put it. They looked up and they saw the fall of the myth of whiteness its superiority, to include its, its, its attachment to sexism, to homophobia, to classism, and so forth. And, and that myth, that myth of whiteness, remains um, like the full breast, these full breasts to these suckling yet aging corrupt political leaders. And they, these persons and their, those that are behind them, the power elite, do not want to see the crumbling, the eradication of the myth of whiteness. And it is that that they have sought to hold on to, that they have sought to nurture, to keep going these four years and even, it's, before these four years, because we've been we've been told, haven't we, by the census about the browning of America. So it's not Donald, you know, Donald Myth. He's he's symptomatic of a bigger problem, and that is trying to hold on to this ideology of the myth of whiteness. And I think that's what's going on. Wow. And 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 that's why I'm happy that you're on with us tonight because. You know, we can get really, and myself included, I can get really caught up in the moment, really caught up in um, the veneer of um, the news and of politics and of government. And, and you're helping us this quickly actually scratch the veneer, scratch the surface and get to the deeper spiritual and theological um complexities that are not as obvious sometimes. Um, you, you've spoken so clearly about the myth of whiteness. Um, and we'll talk about your book in just a moment that really goes into this, a, a beautiful kind of constructive mm -hmm. vision of, of, uh, a womanist queer theology. Mm. Tell us, if you will, about um, your passion for the liberation of Black people, how that led you to Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, just 10 days after Michael Brown was killed. 
and then connect that for us, if you will, to, you know, what the Trump presidency has meant. Trump was elected two years after Michael Brown's killing. Mm -hmm. um, and what a Biden pres presidency might mean for the ongoing struggle um, for Black, Brown, and Indigenous liberation in the United States. Yeah, you, you've given some beautiful bookends, which I, I hate to complexify, <laughs> but I'm, you know, <laughs> being the theologian that I am, <laughs> I shall, with your permission, trouble the waters a bit, you know. Please trouble the waters. That's <laughs> what we want tonight. Thank you. Okay. You know, um, it broke my heart to see the body of a young black man laying on the hot streets of Ferguson, Missouri. But my heart had been, I mean, it, it had been breaking, not for years, but for decades. You know, I, I'm a woman of a certain age. I tell people that all the time. And I have been watching, I've been witnessing the, um, the humiliation of Black people in our nation for so many years. You know, my own father being called boy in Jim Crow South. Um, my father would take string from thread and measure our feet so that he would not he would, they would not take us to the store down, to the stores downtown. You know, there were five of six of us at that time. My sister was pretty much a teenage, six of us. So rather than risk danger to his children, he would take thread and purchase our shoes that way until the, the atmosphere became such that they could actually take us in certain stores, you see, without it being problematic, you see. Uh, imagine what that does to the psyche of a black man who loves his family. You, you see what I'm saying? Um, and imagine what that does to a black, a black woman who has given birth to these children and always trying to figure out Okay, are they going to make it through to another day? So we have, as a black, as a as a black people, been under the kind of threat of black bodies being traumatized, black bodies being harmed, black bodies being oppressed, under this uh, fictional rule of law, whether it's Jim Crow laws, you know, or the rule of laws that black people have to abide by, but that this administration has clearly shown us that it can twist to its very will. When I was in Ferguson, I interviewed people. I never forget one white woman. I, I asked her about Michael Brown. And she said, I asked her if she thought it was right that Michael Brown's name was being demonized in the press before he had a trial. And she said, no, I don't think so. And I, I said, why? She said, because of the rule of law. People have to follow the rule of law. 
And I was stunned because to me, it was as if she, she understood a luxury given to her as a white woman by the rule of law that this young black man was not, was not uh, uh, given, afforded the rights to kill before, I mean, ju- you know, extrajudicial murder. Um, and this is, has this is happened for so long in our nation. So Michael Brown, um, you know, and the several men and women before and after him um, are part of a cloud of witnesses to the horror of oppression against black bodies in America that, that did not begin with Trump. But when you, when you reach the point of Trump, you run into a staunch, stringent narcissist who does everything to stroke his demented ego and has the political power to twist the rule of law in front of Congress. <laughs> and he does it with joy, with extreme joy plays with this rule of law and and then collects to himself the very white people like the woman who was on the streets and you know when when i when i was doing interviews in ferguson who so stood up for the rule of law and cannot see the irony of the twisting of the rules to 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 support the criminal activities of a white man who's, who, is, who is in charge, who's given the leadership of a nation and who has traumatized and done real, under, under his administration, done real, not theoretical, but done real harm to not just black, not just brown communities, but to communities across the globe and to the earth itself. So that's, that's Trump, okay? Now we have the incoming of a man um, in, in, uh, by the name of Joseph, Joseph Biden, Joe Biden, who is a man who is familiar and made humble, familiar with and made humble by unimaginable laws unimaginable loss by the loss of trying to become president two times before the third time, by the loss of his, his wife and his children. These things have, and, and, and also the, the attacks against his political leadership. So he's been shaped and crafted in terms of loss and has, and, and, and his own inabilities, his own stuttering. So you compare and contrast, you juxtapose this, this person who has been leading our government with someone who has been humbled, but not perfected, because he's, he's yet, he's, he's imperfect, but someone who has, been, who has been humbled by loss. And you get someone who is now uh, about to enter law office, who is someone whom I think is a malleable politician, you know, 
imperfect but malleable. And our job is to, is to be so strong that he will yield to the shaping of the people who brought him to the dance, as he likes to say. That's our, that's our task. We can't look for perfection. Perfection is the enemy of good. I'm happy you say that. I, I think you, you give voice to the way that many Black Americans approach voting. Mm. That it, it isn't even, um, I know a lot of people are very critical of this idea of voting for the lesser of two evils. Mm. Um, it's not that. I think you just, you just honed right in on malleability. Um, which candidate, which party, which movement, which whatever, fill in the blank, can be um, become a disciplined partner with Black Americans for our liberation. Mm -hmm. and, um, all, and all Americans, because, I mean, uh, mm -hmm. certainly I'm, I'm concerned about the, I'm concerned about the ways that Black Americans are treated in America, have been from, from, from all of my life. But I understand that, I believe that our success, I believe that our thriving as Black Americans is the thriving of the nation. And for me, it's theological. Because mm. I think that the thriving of one part of the body, we're many members, but one body. Yes. I believe that the thriving of one part of the body is the, and I'm talking about the true thriving. I'm not talking about corruption, Corruption is a, kind of, is a kind of hubris that mm -hmm. takes what it does not deserve. But I'm talking about the thriving of one part of the body. It's the thriving of another part of the body. You know? mm -hmm. The thriving of the heart generates the oxygen, the blood flow that the rest of the body needs. That, that, mm -hmm. That's how I see it. And I, I know I'm going to butcher this um, paraphrase Angela Davis has said something along those lines before that basically black women in many ways, um, their analysis of politics, their analysis of the world as it is, is really a gift because by virtue of their race, their gender, they are able to see the world in a way that no one else can. Mm -hmm. And thus the solutions that black women bring to the world are actually solutions for everyone because, because of their social location. Yes, because we bear in our body, we bear in our body through these social locations, the oppression, op oppression on multiple levels. So within my book, I talked about tripartite oppression, that of being a queer lesbian, black, queer lesbian, black woman. Mm -hmm. And the levels of oppression with that and understanding, you know, how that has shaped my life and my, my viewpoint of the world in which we live uh, has been tremendous. You know, it's been painful, very, very painful. But I believe if one can, 
and, and I think this is spiritual too. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a, I think that if one can somehow grasp and yield one, yield oneself to uh, the workings of the divine, mm -hmm. enough to see, just enough to see, might be teeny bit, to see that the, um, the pain of this world um, can, cannot, cannot overcome the goodness that the divine one has given us, which cannot be taken away by the world, isn't that? I mean, this is black gospel. The, this joy that I have, the world didn't give it, and the world can't take can't it away. Take it away. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and and I think what you're touching on is so much of what sometimes makes me frustrated about what people would say about um, civil rights activists. You know, really focusing on their internal life. And saying, oh, you know, they were so strong, they were so strong, they were so strong, um, as if in some way to justify how brutally, brutally they were treated. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what you're touching on is, is that um, almost immaterial quality that suffering can bear within us. Um, yeah, and I, you know, and I tip around that because, it, I mean, because it's a dangerous, it's a precarious it position is. to be in because then you can lean over into redemptive suffering. Exactly. You know, which is what the oppressor wants you, wants you to sing that tune, you know. Mm -hmm. After a while, by and by, if I just hold my peace and let the Lord fight my battle, you know, I mm -hmm. shall wear a golden crown in the hereafter. Uh, that's not helpful. <laughs> no, that's, no. that's, I mean, I, I, you know, might give you some temporal hopes, you know, but in the end you, you're always suffering. And I don't yes. think that, I don't think that, uh, that ongoing suffering is good for any people because you become traumatized, you know, and I, I have exactly. a son, you know, I have my, my son was in war in Iraq and he suffers from PTSD mm -hmm. and that PTSD is from months of being, you know, in a, in, in war. Mm -hmm. And so the trauma, how black people have been traumatized from oppression mm -hmm. for centuries. Yeah. And so I want to say this. So I don't think, so while on the one hand, we have built ourselves up in terms of endurance and survival and thriving, on the other hand, uh, being traumatized as a people, America cannot expect to have traumatized Black people for centuries and not and not reckon at some point with that having traumatized black people. So the looting that you see, okay? So the anger that you see from black people on the streets 
in some ways, okay, I get it. I don't want businesses looted. I don't want businesses burned. I really care and I'm concerned about small businesses. But on the other hand, there's another part of me that says, there's a reckoning that America has to, has to handle with the, these centuries of traumatizing every, every week to see on repeat the killing of a black person. You don't get to walk away with, from that and say, you know, my thoughts and prayers are with you. No. There must be a, rake, a, 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 a reckoning. There must be some you know, restitution must be made. Now, some take it in their hands to make that restitution. No, I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying mm -hmm. I, there's a part of me that understands that, you see. Exactly. Well, I mean, you're, you're in a, a long line of people who have, who have said that, including Martin Luther King, who says that a riot is the language of the unheard. Um, people are going to get heard mm -hmm. somehow, and and sometimes that's how it happens. Yeah, and some of and that is mixed in those crowds were opportunist. So well, exactly. I'm, I'm and clear that, about that. that. I saw that. I've seen that <laughs> too many times. Yeah. Exactly. That's a different. We'll have to have you back on for yeah. a different conversation. Um, in your book, Our Lives Matter, you take a deep dive into the life. Um, and queer identity of Polly Murray, who was the first black woman ordained to the priesthood in the Episcopal Church. Murray is more well known as, the, as a co-founder of the National Organization of Women, an intellectual um, architect of the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court case in 1954, and a breaker of numerous historical barriers. How does her refusal to be parsed as a black queer woman or black queer person, because uh, there's you know a lot of um, kind of talk about what exactly was Polly Murray's gender identity, mm -hmm. um, especially because she died in a time when we really didn't have that language that we have today. Um, how does her refusal to be parsed as a black queer person inform your work and analysis? A lot. So. Let me just say, on the one hand, I always say that people have the right to identify themselves. And you don't call a person what they do not call themselves. So I have that kind of respect for people. And, and, and I was very careful. If, if, if you read my book, I was very careful to only describe um, Polly Murray, Reverend Polly Murray, as she described herself, you know, and for me that that's a matter of respect and adoration, you know, for what I thought was a tremendously painful journey for her in life. And so in one part of the book, I remember being in the archives, I, I did my research in Schlesinger Library in, at Harvard. And so I remember being in, in the archives holding, you know, that holds her journals and her papers and reading about, reading in her journal about the surgery that she volunteered, actually insisted on having. She insisted on having surgery because she was convinced 
that internally she had the organs of a man. That she was a man somehow trapped in a woman's body. Now, how do you write about that without saying, okay, in today's time, maybe she would have identified, she would in today's time, do you write in today's time she would have, she would have, she would have been transgender? No, you don't do that. Because she did not, you cannot call Polly Murray what she did not call herself. So all that I could do with that is describe what she wrote and talk about how I felt reading that and <clears throat> what must have been the experience, you know, how I imagined that experience, <clears throat> how she wrote about cross-dressing, you know, you know, on this journey with, you know, and you clearly tell this woman is her lover, you know, but do I write that? You know, I write as she described herself. And I think that, I think when you do that, I actually think that supports the discipline because it leaves, it leaves much open to the imagination. And I, and as a queer person, I think that people always wrestle with ambiguity. They want, you know, they want clear answers. No, some things just let them be. Just let them be. I love that. The, the value, my, my boss often says that um, Episcopalians have a high tolerance for ambiguity um, at our best. Um, but that's not necessarily intuitive. I'm Broderick Greer, host of Mile High Theology, and I'm joined by Dr. Pamela Lightsey, seminary vice president, theologian, and author. Before we close, Dr. Lightsey, what will a womanist queer theology look like in this new era? Round. In, in a word, round. I mean, Alice Walker and her definition of womanist theology said that uh, to be a wo uh, womanism, excuse me, not womanist theology. To be a womanist is to, a womanist loves love and food and roundness. And I think it would be round. There is no beginning and no end with roundness, you see. I'm thinking circular. And with roundness, I'm always thinking about full, you know, that there is, you know, that it is expansive. And uh, I think womanism needs to be expansive. Um, and, uh, I, I, and to be round also, for me, there's always this connotation with something that's round that there is, um, I don't know, it has kind of jovial, conveys a kind of jovial spirit to it. And uh, over and against something that's sharp. Maybe that's just language that I'm playing with here. But um, I want womanism to be jo more jovial. I want it to be more expansive. And I certainly want it to be 
a place where one can find a fullness, a fullness. You're, you're one of my favorite preachers. I got to hear you preach in person in 20, it must've been 2019 at the farm, at the Alex Haley farm. Was it 2019 or 2018? Ah, yeah, that would have been 20, 2018, I think it was. Yeah, 2018. And, and there's this awesome, um, I, of course, I'm a son of the black church. I think I say this every uh, podcast, but Son of the Black Church, one of my favorite Black Church sayings before a preacher preaches is hide me behind the shadow of the cross or something along those lines. And and you said, and I love that you said in this, and I have actually a recording of you saying something along the lines of don't hide me under the shadow of the cross or behind the cross. Um, God, I want people to see me. Mm-hmm. Um don't don't hide me anywhere and you you just speak of god in such playful and creative and beautiful and poetic ways please close our time together by speaking to us of god for me um yeah i started my doctoral work actually uh thinking about god's as being the conceptualization we have about God as being all good and only good. God is good all the time and all the time God is good. Problematizing that because I think that that we don't have the language for God and we actually corrupt. There's a corruption in there when we say God is good all the time and all the time God is good because that which we think is good is always seemingly in my, in my ear based upon some material gain. God put food on my table, clothes on my back, shoes on my feet. Ain't God good. Didn't God do it? Won't God do it? Won't he will? You know, that kind of stuff. For me, God is so expansive that there is a possibility that even the evil, okay, the evil, you know, Augustine asked the question, from whence cometh evil? And so I'm curious about a kind of divine evil. Hear me on this. Sad that I stop on this note on your broadcast. But I'm curious about a kind of divine evil that is not the evil that we articulate but is different nonetheless than the kind of good that we talk about if in fact god is everything okay then god's essence must be able to hold both good and evil perhaps Otherwise, where does evil come from if God is everything? I, 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 I'm still questioning how evil enters a world where God, that God has created. I'm, I'm not willing to give evil over to just coming out of nothing. So. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, 
what's helpful to us tonight, and this is something we talk about in our clergy staff a lot, that, you know, the longer we're in ordained ministry and mm -hmm. see people in, in all sorts of, all sorts and conditions of life, we learn something very um, helpful about God's range and God's mm -hmm. complexity, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because we see the range of, of the people we serve um, and become more conscious of our own complexity and our own range. Yeah. I just um, think our language is just too limited for God. And so when we describe yeah. God as either good or evil, I think that's way, way too limiting. And so that's, you know, that's why I'm, I'm still struggling with God's essence, you know, over and against the language that we use, you know. Well, thank you so much for your time with us tonight. I, I cannot thank you enough. Yeah. Um, you, you hold a special place in my heart and, and I know that you will hold a special place in, in the hearts of those who have heard you tonight and who will hear you on the podcast. So thank you again. You're quite welcome. I, I pray that you all are take care of yourself in the midst of this uncertain space that we're in right now. Mm, thank you. Thank you. And, and I, I think, you know, we didn't even talk about the pandemic at all. I mean, it's almost um, these little squares speak speak to the pandemic itself, you know, and in, in yeah, the ways yeah. our lives are, are so different now. Yeah. I, th I, you know, the pandemic, I mean, we could go here. I think the pandemic is perhaps a demonstration of what I'm talking about with God. If God can hold everything mm. in the midst of this pandemic, you know, and if we can find God, hold on to God in the midst of this pandemic, then we kind of, you know, we worked our way through both that which is good and that which is evil in order to hold on to something that is even beyond our language, mm. even beyond our language. And I think that is God. And that is that which we can't, artic can't articulate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The it's always um, a loaded question over the last eight months when someone has said, how are you doing? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's yeah. not a fair question. Um, you know, I, I can't even sort that out. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm doing good. You know, I'm, 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 I've been made, I'm, I think I'm far more humble now about the many mm. privileges that I have. I miss traveling. I miss mm. touching people. Mm. You know, I miss touching people. I miss the ability to be with you in person. I miss that. And and maybe I, I know I took that for granted, you know. Yeah, yeah me too. And uh, this me is too. this is humbling. And and it's and so I receive that as as something that's helped that 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 I am trying to improve upon. I'm not willing to say that the pandemic is making me better. Mm. Uh, but in the midst of this, that is so horrible, you know, this crisis, uh, 
I think that I, I'm receiving some strength from the spirit to become a better person. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for, for doing this leg of the journey with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Malhite Theology is produced by St. John's Cathedral and Episcopal Church in Denver, Colorado. To financially support the work of, the, of this podcast, visit sjcathedral.org forward slash give. That is sjcathedral.org forward slash give. I, I offer special thanks to our guest, the Reverend Dr. Pamela Leitze, our communications director and producer, Evans Owsley, a Christian Formation Assistant, Christina Rutland, Cathedral Administrator, Georgie Brooks Myrtle, and Noah Glenn, who composed our theme music, and you, our loyal listeners. Join us on Monday, December 7th at 6 p.m. as I interview Dr. Andre Johnson of the University of Memphis about Black Christianities in our final installment of our Movement for Black Lives series. This podcast was recorded on the land of Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho peoples. We give God great thanks for the 48 contemporary tribal nations that are historically tied to the lands that make up the state of Colorado. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to enhance Mile High Theology's digital visibility. Thank you. God bless you. See you next month.